Well, church, it's been good to be here today in the Lord's house. We had a very good worship service this morning at 8.30, and uh, you've, many of you have had time to be in community with one another in Bible study and in fellowship, and uh, now we gather for this time of worship. For those of you that are online, you know we're always grateful to have you as a part of our family, and, and uh, we welcome you. We know that sometimes we're in different places physically, but we're still one church, and the Lord continues to draw us even closer together during these days. We're grateful for it. Well, you know that our theme at First Baptist Arlington for 2022 is re, dot, dot, dot. And we're in the process of just re-everything. That's what's going on. And so we have arranged our year liturgically, seasonally for us in an indigenous way here at First Baptist in these eight different seasons. And the winter season is the first one. And there's going to be a different re-word. We're using our biblical vocabulary and our theological vocabulary during this time in our church's life. And so the word for the winter is reflect. And we are spending these first eight weeks of the winter in a season of reflection. You know, we have um, provided for you the spiritual discipline cards to offer you guidance. One particular discipline we're focusing on every single week. So this coming week, we are going to be uh, gathering around the spiritual discipline of celebration. Now, some folks may not know that celebration is actually a spiritual discipline, but it is. It, it leads to a, a full heart. It's about rejoicing and celebrating all that God's done for us. And so I appreciate Kurt Grice who put this material together for us and offered this guidance over these few weeks. And um, so from this week, uh, let me just read you a quote from Nathan Foster on the, um, the guide for this week, where Foster has written, engaging in spiritual practices as a guilt-motivated duty is just not helpful. The disciplines are an invitation to an adventurous, wild romp with a God who's absolutely crazy in love with us. They're not an obligation and are best practiced simply as an active response to God's love. We have to start where we are. If we don't know that we're loved unconditionally right here, right now, not as we should be, but as we are, then that's where we begin. For some people, the best practice they can do is simply sit in silence and prayerfully ask God to reveal how he sees them. So this week, I wanna invite you to this discipline of celebration. You know, the spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices, uh, they're not obligatory, but I would tell you if you want to truly experience the richness of your faith, they're necessary and they're important. They're not to be drudgery though. These daily habits, if you think about it, daily habits, that's what actually shapes us as human beings because we actually live our lives in the everyday. And so it's those daily things that we do that truly do make us into the people we are today. Dorothy Sayers is the one who said, life is so everlastingly daily. Well, that's just the truth. You just live life one day at a time. And as you build these rhythms and habits into just your everyday life, things like reading the Bible, just, just the, the practice of hearing from God, praying, engaging with God in, in true spiritual 
meaningful, personal conversation, reflection upon the things that God is doing and has done or stewarding the things that the Lord has given you. These are just everyday things that we do. And if you think about it, that's what really, that's what really shapes you. That's what develops you. That's what transforms you. That's how you're strengthened. That's how you build your spiritual muscles. It's not necessarily in those, those big mountaintop experiences or even in the crises. What happens there is it just reveals what's already present within us. It's, it's the everyday. You know, this week, I was watching a, a speech by Coach Nick Saban, the head coach of the University of Alabama. And he um, was talking to a group of high school football coaches in Alabama, and he said something like this. He said, you know, we just played in the national championship game and we lost. Yes. Um, anyway, that, he, he didn't say that. That's my commentary on what happened. But here's what he said. It's kind of fascinating. Saban said this. He said, we had three players on our team who had a chance in the national championship game to actually make a difference, and not one of them did. And he said, and here's the reason why. He said, I've been watching them all year, and not one of them took advantage of the opportunity. And he said, the reason for it is, is because all year long, in practice, none of these players did their very best so that they could become the most complete player possible so when their moment of opportunity came, they then could contribute. He said, you couldn't make that up in one day. They had missed out on an entire year of practice. Now let's just stop for a second. I've actually quoted Nick Saban in a sermon. Okay, so what is happening to me? My Auburn fan card is about to be revoked. So do not let anybody back home know that I mentioned this at all, or my family, okay? But here's what I have to say. Nick Saban is right. What he was basically saying was, these players had an opportunity in the everyday to shape themselves, to be prepared for a big moment, and they didn't do it. And so when the big moment came, they weren't ready. That's a great word to me and you. It's in that everyday. That, that daily living with the Lord, that's where you're shaped. That, that's where your character is developed. Some people say character is developed in crises. That's not true. It's just revealed in crises. Your character is developed on the everyday. The transformative work of the Spirit of God is happening in your life just as you live your life every day. And so I invite you once again to just a season of reflection about these things as a church family. And so, you know, we have chosen during the winter to focus our attention on the 23rd Psalm. It's a beautiful, endearing, and enduring Psalm for a lot of reasons. And I think we're, we're discovering that as we're walking through it just sentence by sentence. So today I've entitled the message, Restored. And we're going to focus on two brief words or sentences from this beautiful poem. But look with me at the 23rd Psalm, where David has written, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Here are the two sentences for today. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. 
Those, are, those two statements will be the focus of our time together today. But then David ends the psalm, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, this morning I, I want us to begin as we have almost every Sunday in this series with just this statement, simple but true, sheep need a shepherd. And we've said that pretty much every week, but it's because we believe it. Sheep need a shepherd. Now here's what's interesting about this psalm. You know, the psalms have been around for centuries, so scholars have had plenty of time to dissect them and try to come to a better understanding of of what the actual vocabulary means and also just how the psalms move from one movement to another. And sometimes we know the actual historical context of the psalms. This psalm is no different. It's been studied for centuries. So if you look with me, you know, we talked about this last week at verse five. Some scholars say, some biblical interpreters say, the first four verses, the imagery is the relationship between a shepherd and sheep. But you come to verse five, and you know, we believe David wrote this psalm later in his life, so he's been a shepherd and a king. And some scholars say, when you come to verse five, now it's David the king talking, the the host, someone who has been hospitable in his palace. And so you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Some scholars say, well, now we've shifted the metaphor. We've moved from a shepherd to a king, hosting people, and and then anointing folks with oil, that, that hospitable action, providing enough for them to eat or drink, their cup overflowing. Well, I, I, I get that. I can see why some uh, scholars would view it that way. However, as you remember, those of you who were here last Sunday, we chose, however, to continue the metaphor of a shepherd. And we chose to interpret verse five to be that time in a, in a sheep's life, in the life of a flock. It, we've taken the perspective that this basically covers the course of a year in the life of a flock, that the shepherd has taken the sheep out in the summer now to these table lands, this mesa experience, and, and cleared the land and the pasture and prepared for the sheep and cared for them even though they're in the presence of predators. So we've continued the shepherd and sheep imagery. We'll do that today. So when you come to our focus today, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. We're going to continue to interpret that with this this same metaphor. And here's what I want you to lean into this morning. When When you read that the psalmist says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, underlying this, It's just a a prevailing personal attention that a shepherd gives his his or her sheep. It's a one sheep at a time kind of thing. Shepherds don't immerse their entire flocks in oil. That's not how it works. You do that one sheep at a time. You, You care for them individually. So I want you to lean into that this morning just to be reminded that you and I have a shepherd who actually cares personally for each one of us. You know, Jesus said in John 10, verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. And he said, also, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And so there's a personal, intimate relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. And that, to me, that's what's highlighted here. This one-on-one personal attention that is present. And so anointing the sheep with oil feeding them or watering them one at a time, it's, it's actually personal, intimate kind of activity. So 
want you to, to think about that this morning. That's the kind of shepherd you have. Because I think sometimes you and I think that our lives are not worthy enough to receive that kind of attention. I mean, God's busy. He has a lot going on. There are, there are a lot of other things to do. There are a lot of sheep in his flock. And that's true. But you know what? You are important to him, important enough to receive his personal attention. And I hope you'll receive that truth today. Now, with that said, let's just look at these two areas that are mentioned here in this text this morning, oil and the cup. And, and I want to highlight it this way, healing and fullness. And both of those are connected to the restorative process that takes place in our lives as we engage in our relationship with our shepherd. So let me just walk us through those two aspects of restoration this morning. Let's begin with the first one. Our shepherd brings healing into our brokenness. When, when the text says, you anoint my head with oil, that phrase would have been very familiar to the original readers of this psalm. The ancient world was very familiar with the usage of oil. Olive oil was prevalent in what you and I today would call the Holy Land. And oil was used variously in their culture in the ancient world. First of all, it was used ceremonially. It was used prayerfully whenever, uh, in a spiritual connotation, it could be used to anoint a priest or someone for a particular spiritual activity. Oil was also used medicinally. Um, when someone was ill, it was customary. You know, they lived in a day when there weren't uh, the dock in the box on every corner. There weren't emergency rooms. These people had to take care of each other, took care of their families. And so oil was actually used medicinally. And uh, it was also used as a sign of hospitality when guests were anointed with oil. So if you think about that, ceremonially, there were times when a priest was ordained or commissioned and it was a holy moment and there were times when the people of God would, someone would anoint that person with oil and pray over them and they were commissioned to a specific task. And the sense was you've been anointed by God for this. The oil represented the very presence of God in that moment, if you will. The, the transfer of that kind of responsibility or accountability or authority. It also was used medicinally though. You know, you remember the book of James in James 5? What does James say? If any of you are sick, what does he say do? If you're sick, you remember in James 5? Call the elders of the church, and what will the elders do? They will anoint you with oil and pray over you. In other words, there was a sense in which the anointing process was symbolic, if you will, of the healing properties of prayer and being related to the community of the people of God. But also oil was used uh, hospitably. If there was a guest in your home, it was typical uh, to, to have oil to anoint their head or provide for them. Psalm 92 makes reference to that, how oil has been poured all over me, the psalmist says in Psalm 92. So olive oil was a part of life. It was used in so many settings. But for a shepherd, it was specific. A shepherd used oil mixed with other ingredients as a preventative, and the shepherd also used it medicinally. Because if you think about it, we're at that point in the, in the story in this psalm where the sheep have been taken out in the summer, prepared these pasture lands. Here's one of the, ch the challenges of caring for sheep seasonally, parasites. Gnats and flies, particularly in the summer, swarm and hover around these flocks. Now, you know, Texans, um, do y'all, I say y'all, I live with you now, 
do we have gnats? Do y'all ever, do we ever talk about gnats? See, I'm from Alabama, and uh, my family's actually from Georgia. My dad is the, he was the 13th child in his family, and uh, no twins, and all kids are two years apart. So every other year for 26 years, Granny Wiles had a baby. And uh, my dad was the 13th of them. She was 48 when he was born. My mom was the ninth child in her family. She was the baby. And so they're both from Griffin, Georgia. We have a lot of family in Georgia. And so we visited often when I was a kid. Well, in Georgia, we have what's called the Nat Line. Do y'all know the Nat Line? So from uh, Columbus, Georgia, up to Macon, Georgia, to Augusta, is the fall line for the state of Georgia. And so the topography changes south of, the, of that fall line or north of that fall line. If you go south of that fall line, uh, the soil changes, it's much sandier, it's much more humid. And so that particular part of Georgia, the south of that area is called below the gnat line. What that means is, there are swarms of gnats seasonally below the gnat line. If you live above the gnat line, it's not as bad. Well, my uncle, our favorite uncle, was a dairy farmer in Sandersville, Georgia, right below the gnat line. And we used to go visit them in the summer with all of their dairy cows. It was awesome. <clears throat> Particularly for a city boy to go. Um, well, you know, uh, the Texas Rangers, we used to have a minor league ball team in Savannah. You know what they were called? The Savannah Sand Gnats. Just as a shout out to these gnats. Well, the gnats and the flies, um, they were enemies to sheep. They would swarm around the head of sheep and they're just irritants. That's what they really are. And on the one hand, it seems innocent enough. They can be irritants, but here's the problem. Seasonally, these gnats and flies they will actually settle in the mucous membrane of the nasal cavity of these sheep, and they will deposit their eggs. And when the eggs hatch, it's tiny worm-like larvae that will actually navigate up the mucous membrane into the head of the sheep. How detailed do y'all need me to be in all this information? Because I'm not sure what y'all know or need to know, okay? So here's the problem. Whenever that happens, these gnats then, or flies, have, um, they have infected the interior of the sheep's head. And the way the shepherd knows that's happened is the, she the sheep will start banging their head up against trees and bushes, or they'll rub their head down into the soil, or they will butt heads because they're just trying to get rid of the pain and the inflammation. And so what the shepherd will do then is, as he analyzes the sheep, if you can just imagine that this, this shepherd is out in the, in the summer and he's built a little sheepfold and he's bringing the sheep in one by one at night, analyzing them, and he sees these parasites, he sees the activity of the sheep. So what he'll do is he will take this, this concoction primarily of oil and he will anoint the head of these sheep. And what that does is it will suffocate the larva, but it will also prevent sheep, um, uh, uh, gnats and flies, from infecting the sheep. And so it brings a great deal of relief. It actually restores their health to them. Does that make sense? Now, what does that have to do with you? Thank you. I'm glad it makes sense. So, what does that have to do with you? Well, here's what I would tell you. Um, we all have gnats in our lives. They just, they're just little things, and they just irritate you. 
You know what I mean? They're just, they're not necessarily big things. They're just, they're just gnats. They're, they're circumstantial gnats. Just, you just don't like it. What's going on right now in your life? There's just two or three things. It just, it just irritates you every time you have to think about it. We we have um, gnats at work, you know, things that you got to deal with at work. It just, it just irritates you. We have relational gnats. You got some people that just irritate you. You know, they just, just every time you see them, you just think, "Mm." Mm. you know, and and if you can't think of anybody, somebody else is thinking of you. That's what's happening right now. Okay. That's kind of how it works. Okay. So you get these gnats, you have these petty differences and temptations to sin and things that just kind of swarm around. And it seems innocent enough. They're just minor irritants, but, but hear me carefully. Here's what can happen. If you're not careful, you can let those minor irritants deposit some eggs in, in your spirit and in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. And if you're not careful, they can start spreading and become more bitterness, deep-rooted bitterness. And guess what it can lead to? Brokenness. Brokenness in relationships and in harmony in churches. Uh, just, just pick an arena. If you allow these, these what seem to be just these irritants, these gnats take root, well, over time, you get enough of them and, and it can cause some great damage. The shepherd knew that. So there he is at the end of the day or the end of the season. He's bringing them, those sheep in one at a time and he's noticing it and he immediately takes action. Well, here's what I want you to know. Your shepherd's paying attention right now in your life and he wants to heal you from that bitterness. He wants to anoint you to prevent you from allowing those irritants to grow into something of greater magnitude that can really cause damage in your life and in your family and in your relationships. So let him do that. Let him bring the ministry of the Holy Spirit into your life so that you don't have those, those uh, sources of irritation. I mean, right now in my culture, uh, I look across my culture, and here's what I would tell you. My culture, my society is just irritated. It's just, there's just so many irritants that are just kind of in the mix. And people have short fuses right now, quick triggers. What that tells me is, is that they're, they're just irritated. What is the answer? Well, one answer is a personal relationship with a shepherd who can bring his anointing healing oil into your brokenness. And that's what Jesus offers us. I hope that you'll avail yourself to it. One other thing, though, from this text. Our shepherd fills our emptiness with his fullness. You see these sheep out in the pasture, coming into the sheepfold, the shepherd's going to examine them for parasites, but also to see if there's anything else that they need. And particularly to see if they're thirsty or or cold. Sometimes they will mix a concoction of water and wine to to deal with the, the, the cold air that comes as the summer starts to end and the fall is coming. But certainly the water is there uh, to address the thirst that they may have. And here's what, this, what David says. He says, our shepherd, when you get to him in his presence, he doesn't just have a little cup. He has a cup for you that's overflowing. In other words, he, he will have for you more than you will ever need. You don't have to worry about his resources. Your thirsts can be quenched. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Jesus drew on that imagery in the New Testament. You know, 
uh, one of my favorite stories in, in the life of Jesus is found in John 7, where Jesus is in Jerusalem, and it's the, it's the feast of the booths. It's the, it's the festival of the tabernacles. It's where the Jews are living in these little tents up on top of their houses, and they're reminding themselves that their forebears used to live in tents out in the wilderness, and God provided for them. And one of the things they focus on during the festival of the tabernacles is God providing water. So Moses struck the rock, and water flows out of the rock, and God gave them plenty of water to live. And so when you're in that feast of weeks, here's what, or feast of, of um, booths, here's what happens. The priest begins a processional in, in the temple, and they make their way down to the pool of Siloam. And they get to the pool of Siloam and the priests will gather up water into these vases. They'll come all the way back to the temple and in the outer altar and they will pour the water out beside the altar. And they do that every day for seven days. And here's what's fascinating about that. Israel is an arid place geographically. And if there's anything you don't do in an arid climate where water is scarce, what do you not do with water? Just pour it out on the ground. But, so why are they doing this? Well, they do this to symbolize their trust, to demonstrate they trust God just like their forebears trusted God in the wilderness. So the priests will come up and take all that water, pour it out on the side of the altar. On the last day, though, they will do it seven times. There's this huge ceremony. And so the people are all watching, and all this water is being poured out. And I love what Jesus does. In John 7, verse 37, listen to what John says. John says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, is anybody else still thirsty? He says, if you are thirsty... He looks at all these people, watching all this water being poured out. He says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Then he says this, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So Jesus says, if you'll come to me, the cup will always overflow. As a matter of fact, he says, it'll be like a spring, a well of water inside of you so that you'll never be thirsty again. Isn't that what he told the woman at the well? Remember in John 4, he said, this water, you draw it, you'll be thirsty tomorrow. Come receive this water. You receive this water, it's like a spring inside of you. And she said, oh, I want some of that water. I'm tired of coming out here to this well every day. And then she had to realize later, this was a spiritual analogy. Jesus wanted to quench a much deeper thirst than just her physical one. That's exactly what he does today. And so his, he offers you a cup that overflows. So if you're thirsty, you see, life has a way of depleting you. Life, life can drain you of your energy. Life can, life can hit you in an unexpected way, in an unexpected moment. And you, you can be rocking along and everything is lining up. Every, everything is adding up. It just, it just seems like you've got it going on. And then something can happen and all of a sudden you can find yourself parched and thirsty. Well, I've got good news for you. You've got a shepherd that has an overflowing cup with your name on it. And he wants to meet that deepest need in your life because he's a really good shepherd. See, that's a part of the restorative work of our shepherd. And so, think about that. If you get us all together, those of us who've been restored, who understand the beauty of it, wow, God can accomplish a lot with those kind of people who have recognized that they need to be restored. They need to be anointed personally by the shepherd. They need to drink from the water that he offers you fill a church with those kind of people, the people of God can be such an instrument in the hands of God. You know, this last week, um, after we got back from Rome, 
I've spent most of the week in Waco at Baylor at our Board of Regents meetings at Baylor. And one of my colleagues there who's on staff at Baylor on the president's team uh, is a guy named Dr. Malcolm Foley. Malcolm's a good friend of mine, just finished his PhD in, in church history. He's also an pa- associate pastor of a church at there. And he and I were talking about a sermon. He's, he's, uh, one of his colleagues is out of the pulpit right now, so he is preaching some. And he, he was telling me about a sermon that he had just prepared. And it really caught my attention, and we spent some time talking about it. And the gist of the sermon is the difference between free people and freed people. Do you hear the difference? The difference between free people and freed people. Malcolm and I were talking about that, and you know, you think about it with me. You see, some people think the church is filled with just free people. You've been set free by the gospel, and you just want to live in your freedom. But here's what happens to free people, people who are just free, and that's how they view it. Free people can become very entitled they, they can almost act like they were born free. They become very individualistic in their orientation. They become very rights-oriented in their perspective. Everything's about their rights and what they can do and should do. Often, free people are interested in how the church serves them. They're very different than the perspective of people who maintain the understanding that we're actually freed people. You see, freed people. We realize we weren't born free. We've been rescued. You see, we realize that we have been bought with a price. We realize that our freedom has come at a great cost. We have a collective memory as the people of God. We all know that we're to stay humble. We have a common identity. We're like Israel of old. Every one of us who knows that we've been freed See, what we know is we, we all have the same memory. It might have happened at a different time, but we all know what it's like to walk up to the Red Sea of death, of spiritual death, and we know what it's like to feel the oncoming army of Pharaoh of judgment and sin that's impending upon us, and we know what it's like to see our shepherd lay down his life for our sin on our behalf so that we can be rescued from the enemy, so that we can have life and not death, and we can be set free to be the freed people of God living in humble circumstances with a common identity with God's people, a part of his flock, with a desire to see his will done and to serve his kingdom interests rather than our own. You see, freed people. Man, you get a church full of them, come on, y'all. You can change the world with those kind of people. That's who I want us to be. You see, this, this relationship with a shepherd, what it means is I've been restored, and I needed it, and I need that restorative work of my shepherd in my life. As you do, I hope, I pray, I trust that every one of us have experienced the restorative hand of our shepherd personally in our lives so that we can join the freed, redeemed people of God. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful today for just the truth of redemption and restoration and the fact that it's in our life with you that we can find restoration. And Lord, there may be those right now within the sound of my voice who, who need it. They're, they're irritated. They are, uh, uh, some of them perhaps, Lord, have even gone beyond the stage of irritation and maybe roots of bitterness have developed and they need the restorative 
hand of a shepherd, anointing them with the precious oil of your spirit and presence. So God, I pray you'll do just that, even in these few moments. There are others, Lord, who are weary. Their souls are parched. And they feel a a certain void or emptiness. And right now, they need to see a cup that's overflowing, that has their name on it, that's in the hands of a gentle and loving shepherd. May that be so. May you draw whoever and from wherever they come into that relationship with you. And may they find you to be a good shepherd. And Lord, may we all never lose sight of the fact that we have been restored and that we needed it and we continue to need it in our daily lives. May we never lose perspective that we are the freed people of God. And may you find us useful in your hands. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.